Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. Welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. And of course, I am Murphy Houston, and we have a great topic today, one that's going to be very eye-opening to you as parents, as athletes, as guys. It'll be interesting. Next week is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Well, it actually starts tomorrow, so we're going to talk about that. And our special guest today is Dr. Ovidio Bermudez. Did I get that right, Doc? You did. Nice try on my part, right? Uh, Chief Clinical Officer for the Eating Recovery Center right here in Denver. And if, a name you all guys know, if you follow NECU football and Seattle Seahawks, it's Patrick Deveni. I think I called you Deveni last time, Patrick. <laughs> this that time, happened a lot, This probably. time you nailed it. I, I Practice know, I, makes perfect. I got to be right. I mean, <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't come over here and grab me by the throat and say, no, it's Deveni. All right. Guys, we're going to talk about this uh, uh, disorder situation that's in our country today that, as uh, Dr. Bermudez was telling us, is pretty much maybe not out of control, but it's bigger than most of us think. And let's talk about your background a little bit, Doc. Tell us about what you do and what we're all about and about what you've done. Sure, sure. So, you know, I'm a pediatrician by training, uh, and my career just happened to uh, be all about eating disorders. So that's what I've done for the past 30 years. And uh, nearly a decade ago, I came to Denver to join Eating Recovery Center. It was sort of, you know, the culmination of several people with a lot of clinical experience who said, let's do it. Let's do it best. Um, And, you know, almost a decade later, here we are. I wonder how many people don't even know there's an eating disorder center in Denver. Because well, I didn't know about it till you and I started talking. You know, the, the, the reality is is that a lot of people are not aware of a lot of the resources that are out there. And, and there is still a, a, a supply-demand mismatch, meaning that there are more people needing help, that help is available. And that's why this conversation to me is so important, because if the public is aware, if, people, if, this, if this is something that people become aware and educated about, then they can, they, they're in a better position to, to handle it. If, if, if it arises, which, you know, I, I wouldn't, certainly uh, wouldn't wish that upon anybody, uh, but, but help works and, and, you know, treatment works and, and people should be hopeful and, and, and be willing and open to seek help. Well, for sure, with this topic, with eating disorders, that's, I can't even think of imagine trying to do it yourself without that help. How could you, right? Yeah. No, and, and the, the reality is, is that the best literature that we have points to the fact that, you know, without help, uh, these disorders sort of cement themselves over time. Because part of the problem is, is that, you know, when, when people start to, to go down the path of dieting and overexercising and binging and purging, um, you know, and, and the behaviors that sort of constitute eating disorders, what they're looking for is really to help themselves feel better. Right. You know, there's right. angst, there's anxiety, um, and, and they're looking to help themselves feel better. And, and in the short term, unfortunately, it does. Um, the, the, the unintended consequence, however, is that these behaviors begin to change the brain. And then this becomes a vicious cycle. So you feel badly uh, about life circumstances or whatever. You engage in, in disordered eating behaviors or patterns, right? In the short term, your dysphoria or, or you know, your, your, the bad sense gets a little better, but then the brain starts to change. And then when the brain goes away, you start to feel worse. And there is the cycle. Oh, That's man. the entrapment of the cycle. Entrapment. That's the right word for that, for sure. Now, are all eating disorders the same? Not at all, and and especially in this day and age. I mean, I think that just, um, you know, for, for centuries it was anorexia nervosa, um, and that's how this came to be sort of thought of uh, as a, a, a disease of women, of young women, 
um, and and mostly Caucasian uh, young women. Uh, that has that has changed dramatically. Has it dramatically? Now we're talking about, you know, it, <laughs> we we jokingly kind of say this disease doesn't discriminate um, because we're talking about several demographic drifts um, that are meaningful and, and very present, and they include younger and older people. So younger meaning seven and eight years of age, which was really seven and eight, not the case just a little while ago, so to speak. And then more, much more mature people, people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. We've at Eating Recovery Center, we've treated someone in their 80s um, with anorexia nervosa. The second uh, drift is about more males and more males, not just in anorexia, but in bulimia, in binge eating disorder. And now we have things like ARFID, like avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is really not about thinness. It's about either disinterest in food, hence restrictive, or avoidant of certain sensations like fear of vomiting. If I eat, I'm going to vomit. So it's not like I want to lose weight and be thin like in anorexia, but boy, I, I cannot nourish my body. And and many kids stop growing because of this, including growing taller. So so it's a problem. The the other demographic drift is all races um, and and all ethnicities. And the fourth is all socioeconomic backgrounds. So this is, you know, it's a fallacy to say this is about young Caucasian women anymore. That That is simply just not the case. And now you're saying it's getting more common in children? I mean, I really? And that's more of a recent problem? Really. Um, you know, there is a statistic that in a recent decade— the rate of hospitalization for kids under 12 uh, increased by 119%. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, children's hospitals, hospitals sort of having to tackle um, this new phenomena of, you know, a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old coming in underweight, malnourished, um, and, you know, who perhaps has stopped growing. Um, and, you know, that that's a, that's a health crisis, um, if, Absolutely. if that makes any sense. It does. And I can't imagine with children that age, what are the parents doing? They must see something. Well, you know, um, Murphy, this is, is, is tough. I, I think we I think we started by being quite critical of parents in this, in the sense that, I mean, there was a time that we thought that parents caused eating disorders. So there was a term called uh, an anorexogenic mother, a mother that caused anorexia because of the way she behaved. And, you know, fathers were... Uh, distant and emotionally uninvolved in all of this. I think that has clearly been been debunked. And I got to tell you, I, the parents I, I, I run across in our clinics are, you know, loving, good-meaning people, and, and they begin to accommodate. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the, 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 the frog in the, in the water pan, right? You know, if you, if you throw the, pot, the frog in boiling water, of course it notices and it tries to jump out. But if you put it in there and then start to just very gradually heat up the water, the frog hardly notices the change, and before you know it, the water is boiling. And I think this is a little bit akin to what happens to families. You know, a kid is not, you know, uh, really keen on eating, and, and parents accommodate, and, you know, I want, I want chicken nuggets from, you know, from this place, uh, not, you know, not from this other store. Um, you know, I, I want to I be thinner. I want to be healthier. I want to exercise more because I heard in, you know, in health class that that was the way to health. And, you know, what, what, you know it, it's hard for a parent to argue with that. A lot of times when kids are binging and purging, it's very secretive. You know, it, kid, you know keeps can, kids can keep things underground, un, you know, under radar. Oh, sure they can. Yeah. yeah. And so before you know it, this sort of, this sort of happens. And, and by the time parents sort of are faced with this, uh, th- this problem has, this snowball has grown and has done some rolling downhill. So the point is, 
we've always, not always, but for a long time, grown up under the impression, oh, it's only women, only young women that have this eating disorder. And you're saying, no, it's everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other group that we really need to pay attention to um, is is the gender nonconforming uh, group. There, you know, it's, it's very clear uh, this is a group of people, often young people, um, you know, who, who are dealing with a, with a serious uh, challenge or, or a, you know, a trifecta of challenges uh, that includes eating disorders, that includes surf, self-harmful behaviors, and includes high risk for suicide. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a group that we really need to pay attention to. Well, there's another group that might surprise a lot of people, too, and that's why Patrick uh, Deveni is here with us today, athlete, a good athlete, played for the Buffs, played for Seattle, and you had an eating disorder. And when I heard that, I'm going, what? An athlete with an eating disorder. Can you talk about that, Patrick? What was it like? How did it happen? How did you get started? Why? Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, there's a few things mentioned here that Dr. Bermudez mentioned that eating disorders don't discriminate. And for me, I had no idea that I actually had an eating disorder the entire time. What started as kind of what I define now and is diet culture. Um, the fact is you basically start out and you're applauded. Um, like Dr. Bermudez had mentioned, I would go through life transitions or things would happen. I got, when I went to CU, I got moved from quarterback to tight end. And in that transition, all of a sudden you're trying to gain weight. You're comparing yourself to the guys in the locker room, all these outside pressures, um, which could even be similar for a child. You, you look at so many pressures now coming from social media and Instagram, and you look at somebody you look up to not knowing what they're doing. It's very common now a child can look at somebody in the NFL that's on performance-enhancing drugs and feel this pressure to go out there and try to perform a certain way, look a certain way, which is not achievable. But right. then that puts you in a... And what happened to me was I would put myself on stu- such strict diets to try to achieve a certain level of performance. And it really served more as a, a Band-Aid to this insecurity and these emotions that were coming up for me that the one thing I could control was my diet and my exercise. And so as that, like Dr. Bermudez mentioned, it served as one, people were applauding me for my work ethic. I was starting to look quote unquote great, lower body fats, leaner, faster, so on and so forth. However, as that progressed, I started to lose energy, started to feel worse and worse, started looking for more and more. It was almost like a fix that I, it reached a pinnacle and then it started to kind of pull back in the effects that it was having to me. And I then became more and more extreme. And all of a sudden now, I would eat something, I would throw up, I would go to the gym for four hours and try to punish myself and kind of what society's, you know, Dwayne Johnson made it famous with uh, his like whole hashtag uh, sweat equity, going to the gym and sweating like crazy. And that's now a good thing. And these uh, Sunday night cheat meals and all this kind of stuff that's very unhealthy behaviors. And once that became not enough, my cycle went from it felt really good to now I was becoming overly obsessed with the actual process and started missing out on so much of life and that entire cycle that it really led to a deep depression and it was never, never enough. And it just became worse and worse throughout the entire process. Right. right. And that happened as soon as I got done playing. Then the only thing I could control was my diet and looking good. I wasn't in the NFL. All my buddies were. I better be able to show up and at least look like it. Sure. And same with other life transitions. Mom passed away, all that kind of stuff. And, and food became my coping method. 
I didn't suffer from drugs or alcohol or opioids. It was food. And the tough part is most people look at it and like, you're healthy. You're fine. You look great. You look, you look amazing. Yeah. Right. So then all of a sudden, when I finally did seek therapy and help, I then not only it was the most relieving feeling ever because it wasn't just me. It wasn't, I thought I was going through this by myself, but I, when I was diagnosed with bulimia, it took the pressure off of me and this insecurity because nobody was talking about it to the point we've just discussed. It was always a 60 pound white female that I associated sure. eating disorders with sure, and never knew it was even possible for me that I just thought, I just felt like I was losing my willpower to diet, to work out hard, to do all that kind of stuff. And then the issue became, so I felt so relieved at that point, but then during recovery and during therapy, I spent 99% of my time trying to convince people I had a problem because everyone would look at me and be like, no, you look fine. You're not anorexic. You're not sick. Like, but really it was more of a mental battle for me and the fears associated with it. So it was really tough to try to transition through that into a place now where it's, it's such a, in the culture today, dieting is so applauded and recognized as something good. And it, for me, it became the beginning of the end. Wow. Did you think you were the only athlete going through this, that you were the only one on this eating cycle that was not healthy? 100%. And it wasn't even athlete. I was the only male. Even wow. when I was done playing, and that was where things really took off. Because it really did. It started as clean eating. I thought in order to be a good athlete, you had to eat chicken breast, broccoli, and brown rice. Right. And then that slowly progressed into all of a sudden I was doing paleo. I was doing intermittent fasting. All these diet fads to try to just chip away at my physique and my performance. And then when I was done playing, it was that transition as well that it really became, I was isolated by myself in my house. And the problem with a lot of eating disorders, it's almost an invisibility factor. I was always by myself when this stuff would happen. Of I course would binge you by myself. Sure. I would throw up by myself. I would work out by myself. So you're not out there talking with your buddies. It, it probably would have been super relieving had I just turned to a friend and be like, yeah, man, I'm struggling with food. And he probably would have been like, yeah, me too. But nobody talks of about it. Of course not. It's that big elephant in the room no one wants to really talk about because it's, it's really seen as more, dude, just get back on the diet. What's wrong with you? Like, it's not we, a matter of are you performing well? It's a matter of like, dude, I dieted for six weeks versus seven, right? Not mental health. Were you surprised how many athletes were doing it? Once you started talking about it, did more come out and say, I, me too? Without a doubt. I think that's one of the hardest things for me to look back on, especially being so involved. I do a lot of speaking with programs now around the nation. And, and really, there's a, and Dr. Bermudez can speak to this better than I can, but a big distinction between disordered eating and a full eating disorder. But I would say, and I truly mean this, that, at elite levels, at least 90%, and I'm, I don't want anyone to point out the outlier here, so I'll say 90% of athletes at elite levels have disordered eating. This fear around they can't eat cake because that's going to make them fat or something. And it's a, you know, there's zero science behind it. I call it bro science. They read something in some magazine that some guy wrote that now that's dictating their lifestyle and their food choices um, as opposed to just have that piece of cake. And wow. so most athletes definitely struggle with it. Were your coaches aware of it? Did they seem to just turn a blind eye to what was happening? You know, that's, uh, that's a really interesting point, too. A lot of the speaking I do, and I always say this, I'm not meeting coaches at zero when I come in and raise awareness about eating disorders. I'm actually meeting them at negative 5,000 because most of these coaches were athletes, especially at elite levels. So 
when I come in and I talk about their players, I talk about myself, they're feeling it. And I'm not jabbing them, but odds are they suffered from some sort of disordered eating as well because that is so commonplace in athletics. So it's something they kind of look back and do. They don't want to touch it because they know it's resonating for them and or they're in denial because that's what made them great. So it's it's yeah. really a tough track to go down and try to convince people that it, it is a serious mental illness. And I'm sure people listening now are, are completely dumbfounded as I was when I read about athletes actually go through this. And when does it start? When did it start for you? In college, pros, high school? No, for sure. I felt the pressures in high school um, to start eating clean. And as my athletic career progressed, so did the eating disorder. As the pressures became more and more... I, I remember a time in freshman year of high school where I would just go home and eat a pizza. And that's also another thing too that especially when you're active in power sports or any sport, it's you're an athlete, you're a growing boy, eat, 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 eat. And you're being forced food and forced all this kind of stuff. And you can get away with it. You're metabolizing. Sure. At that age, yeah. Radar for sure. And then all of a sudden you start to feel these pressures. And as you progress in your career, it just becomes more and more prevalent. And were the high school coaches aware of that? High school teachers? No. And I can say that now too, because I do a lot of co- I do a lot of speaking at high schools, and ninety nine percent of the time, everyone's like, "Wait, what?" It's not a matter. It's it's more of once they realize and hear the actual what my thought process was, they then see how prevalent it is. But until then, it's more just the normal thing. And coaches aren't encouraging that. Do you think they're doing that now? I mean, there's parents out there listening now that have kids playing high school sports. Yeah, I think it's no fault to their own. I think that's the pressure. You know, I I look back, especially when I had to gain weight. I remember times when I was playing that I would literally stuff weights into my compression shorts because I was getting weighed every single day. And you see that in wrestling. You see that in these other sports where they have to either gain or lose weight drastically. And there's so much pressure. I don't fault any of the coaches I was with because everybody's – this is their livelihood. This is how they have to perform. That's the nature of the game that I think is fundamentally flawed. And I don't, so I don't put the pressure on the coaches that they're, you know, doing it purposely. I think it's just quote unquote bad science that's driving a lot of this. If you want to be, you have to be leaner, stronger, faster, and you're going to do that by losing weight or body fat. Exactly. Patrick Deveni actually confessing to everybody and helping children now and young athletes be aware of what's going on out there. This week is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Uh, Dr. Ovidio Bermudez, who is the chief clinical officer at the Eating Recovery Center, is with us. And, Doc, what Patrick was talking about, do you hear that story a lot, especially well, with athletes? You know, we, we, hear, we hear that story an awful lot in, in athletics at all levels, right, both for females and for males, have, uh, you know, their, their own perils because the expectations are high. Um, and, you know, for, for a lot of athletics – uh, the, the data seems to support that um, uh, judge sports, where especially where appearance is, is part of the judgment of how you get points, right. uh, is the, carries the highest risk. Refereed sports, lower risk. Really? Uh, yeah, if you sort of think about that. Now, that doesn't mean that a refereed sport like football, right, that there's not a pressure in the locker room or from coaches and you know, Murphy, this is not about blaming parents or blaming coaches or blaming athletic departments. This is really about you know opening our eyes as a society to the realities out there. Be aware. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is data to say, look, um, there there have been studies that have polled coaches for you know pre participation meals, for example, and and a lot of these people are uh, you know with their best intention giving the wrong advice. 
um, you know, and and I mean, the idea is not to to do something uh, to give bad advice to their athletes that they're coaching. Most of the time, they really care about these people. Um, but you know, when the knowledge is lacking, then you know we tend to rely on the. Uh, I think, as as Patrick mentioned, the 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 pro info, right? I read it somewhere. It must be true. Um, you know, I, I like to kind of jokingly say that you know somebody taught Rocky how to drink a dozen raw eggs each morning. And, you know, it's it's not exactly a smart thing to do. No. <laughs> you know? And, and I'm sure Rocky didn't think of it by himself. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. Good point. Uh, Patrick, while we're still on this topic of sports and athletes, it does seem to me that over the last few years that at the pro level, and I'm thinking of our Denver Broncos, they're more aware. They have dietitians. They have instead of, well, you're on your own for lunch, go have fun, boys, that they're controlling that more. Is that part of this process we're talking about because of the awareness of eating disorders? I think it is. I think the first thing that came to mind right there is that also scares me to a certain extent. Oh, it does. How so? Uh, It does, for sure, because I know when I was at CU, they did a great job of um, telling us what to eat, and and a lot of it, sure, it would change our physique and performance and all that kind of stuff, but no one really taught me how to eat for myself. And the issue came when I was done playing. All I then knew was to restrict calories and eat the certain vegetables and all this kind of stuff that when you're being spoon-fed everything, you really don't know how to think for yourself. So when you're done playing, it becomes a bigger issue because now you're trying to surround for anything. You're going to turn to this pseudoscience that you know you know what worked in the past, and but it's also hard to replicate that process. I don't have a chef at home to prepare all my meals. Oh, that's true. So then now I'm going to turn to this Rocky style and be like, I don't know what to eat. I'm just going to chug 12 eggs. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's definitely very beneficial, but I think the next step to that process, which I know some universities are doing is training their athletes, how to actually cook for themselves. When I got done playing, I know how to make an omelet. I didn't know how to make actual dinner and all this kind of stuff. And you're limited on time and all this. There's a lot of factors that go into it. But I think it's beneficial, but there's also a next level that could be really helpful to a lot of athletes. So how are you doing now? Now, I mean, that's the one thing I can say, and it's we had touched on it and why I do a lot of work and and really look up to programs like ERC is there is a community and there is hope. Now I'm recovered. I don't have a concern around food. I'm not obsessing in the gym, but I think there was a huge step where I went through recovery by myself. I had no clue that there was facilities and treatment centers or places just have go sit down with another group of males and talk about this kind of stuff. And it was always kind of like, I'm a man. I don't want to go sit down with a therapist or sit down sure. with a doctor or any of that kind of stuff. Sure. And now being in these facilities and they're so welcoming, it's so easy to talk to you and, and you really to have that support system is huge. And I think that's something that ERC does so well. Um, to just create a non <laughs> scary environment to just talk about real life stuff because it's all real. And you're not the only one. Correct. That probably helps a little bit. Hundred percent. Holy cow! Look at all these guys. No question. And no that kind of loosens you up a little bit, makes Absolutely. it comfortable. Do you hear yeah. that a lot, Doc Murphy? If I may, I want to I want to go back and touch on what Patrick sure. just mentioned. Sure. And, and he earlier he mentioned the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. Yeah. That was a, a, an interesting yeah. comment. So I, I think I think that I think that first of all, let's clarify there. So you know, um, you, you can say if you take a universe of people in a society, so you take you know citizens in Denver, you can say probably in this realm we fit into one of three categories, right? Uh, people who don't have eating problems, 
and they live with variable degrees of discontent with their body. Right? Sure, it's sure. actually been called normative discontent because it's, it's normative, right? Right. We all know, you know, if you wake up and you look in the mirror and you say, wow, right? That's something wrong with that picture too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's the other extreme. Yeah. And we got to be thoughtful about that. So, right. you know, we all, we all have things we don't like about ourselves, and, but, but that doesn't mean we have to do anything pathological about it. Then the next layer is disordered eating. People who are unhappy with their size, their weight, their appearance, and begin to do things about it, uh, like engaging in dieting, excessive exercise, you know, usually efforts to sort of chisel themselves into, you know, feeling better accepted sure. uh, in whatever way, you know, by others, by oneself, et cetera. And then of those people who engage in those behaviors, there is a few that have the genetic vulnerability, and those behaviors actually interact with with their brain function, um, and these people cross the line into an eating disorder. And an eating disorder is a serious mental health illness um, with anorexia, but not only anorexia, the other eating disorders as well, ha- carrying high, high medical complications, rate of medical complications, high, high rate of psychiatric complications, highest mortality rate in anorexia of any um, psychiatric illness known um, and uh, including the risk of, you know, serious risk of suicide. Uh, suicide and eating disorders is, uh, is, is serious. It's a serious issue to consider. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, when, when you are in the disordered eating sort of phase, sure. if one gets there, um, education is very important. And, you know, efforts by teams, universities, high schools, middle schools, et cetera, to educate about nutrition, to educate about, you know, Individual differences were not all shaped alike, and we're not the same size, and we don't look exactly alike. right. Um, you know that can be very helpful to revert that to okay, you know, more normative discontent, and I try to live well. There's nothing wrong with that concept, but for the people who've crossed the line into an eating disorder, now this is a mental illness. So getting well on your own from an eating disorder is a little bit like telling somebody with serious depression just get happy. Um, you know, get over it. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't work that way. Uh, help is important. Help works, um, including outpatient help with psychotherapy, medical management, sometimes psychiatric care. There is a lot of psychiatric comorbidity with eating disorders. So, you know, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, for some people, bipolar disorder. And so understanding the whole picture and really understanding and treating the whole human, not just their eating disorder, becomes critical. Um, you know, debunking the shame. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only male. Well, Patrick's pointed that out. Oh my gosh! Yeah. You know, imagine, imagine feeling like you're the only, the sole person in this planet oh, struggling with that problem. It would be devastating. That, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so um, to me, it's a, it's an important differentiation. And then the other thing that's that's really key, I think, to mention, um, you know, sort of concretely, is that y- you cannot look in some at somebody and because of their weight of their size, tell or not if they have an eating disorder. That's really important because we tend to think of a very underweight female, for example, right? And say, oh my gosh, that person has anorexia. Yeah. But eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. And it's impossible, impossible to recognize who has an eating disorder and who does not right. just because of by the way they look. And as you pointed out, all demographics, all walks of life. All it's walks. not just one little area of people out there that are, are suffering. And before we, you know, let you go here quickly, is there a difference between an eating disorder and like a diet? I mean, what if your doctor puts you on a diet, right. as opposed to maybe these diets you see advertised on television? So, so, so I think we got to differentiate between 
you know, medically supervised and sometimes necessary weight management, right? I mean, if if you and I go to our doctor and we're developing, you know, pre-diabetes and, and high blood pressure, high blood pressure and right. high cholesterol, boy, we got to modify our lifestyle yeah, exactly. uh, in order to address exactly. that as, as a health need. That is that is far away yeah. from keto and paleo and South Beach and et oh, cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I mean, it's not to pick on any one of them because, uh, I mean, unfortunately, um, they all land in a very similar place, which is... Uh, people can see results in the short term, and then there is rebound, and you end up in a worse spot than worse you started. Spot. I you bet know. you saw a lot of that, Patrick. It was the worst. I mean, diets scare me beyond belief, yeah. uh, primarily from the standpoint of I was always, I tried every diet under the sun, cycling on and off, and it was I literally lived a life that became a scientific equation. What I could eat, what I couldn't, how much calories are in it, all this kind of stuff. And it always had an underlying issue of I was insecure in myself. So I would jump to any sort of diet that I could in order to try to solve that insecurity, which never worked. And you see those rebound effects. You see everything. So it just really spirals out of control so quick. Well, I appreciate you guys coming in today. We could have talked for another half hour because all these questions are flying through my head. Well, what about this? What about this? We'll have to have you back and talk more about this problem. It's Dr. Ovidio Bermudez and Patrick Deveni. We appreciate you guys coming in. Uh, it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week this week, so be thinking about that. If you think you might have it in your household, reach out to the good doctor over at the Eating Recovery Center. They'll have some questions for you. And Patrick, we appreciate you coming out and sharing your life. It's not an easy thing to do. Of course. Thank you. And we'll have you back again, you guys. Thank, appreciate thanks it. for having us. Yeah, anytime. And we appreciate you all listening. This is Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston, and we hope you enjoyed and learned a little something today. And we'll be back again next weekend right here, and we'll be glad to talk to you about another topic that you should be aware of. Thanks for listening.